Yes, we're in November, but that doesn't prevent us from traveling in time and relative dimension in space, which means this week we speak with Keith Hoodlett, our former host, about managing security teams and security initiatives. In the news segment, China's hacking contest turns months of effort into 15 minutes of exploits. Project Zero turns 104 days of GitHub actions into a disclosure. Space systems turn software installations. CVE naming turns into wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. And more. Check your flux capacitors and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. Application security is hard when security is separated from your DevOps workflow. Security has traditionally been the final hurdle in the development lifecycle. Iterative development workflows can make security a release bottleneck. With GitLab, security is built into the CI-CD process. Every code commit is automatically scanned for security vulnerabilities in your code and its dependencies. Results are delivered to the developer in their native workflow for rapid remediation. Learn how GitLab enables DevSecOps. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash GitLab for a 30-day free trial. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. With 84% of cyber attacks targeting the application layer, securing your software is more challenging than ever. Synopsys enables DevSecOps with a portfolio of industry-leading tools including Coverity, Black Duck, and Seeker to help you build secure, high-quality software faster. Synopsys is the leader in application security testing. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash synopsis to learn more. Welcome to Application Security Weekly. This is episode 129, recorded November 9th, 2020. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with Matt Alderman. Hello, Matt. Good morning. I think the Chinese hacked my Windows 10 machine, which is why I had so many issues with my camera this morning. Oh, dear. Good thing that you're keeping it patched, though. That's what we always say. And we always say hello to John Kinsella, who's with us as well. Hello, John. The Windows machines are patched, but I'm missing Flash so much. <laughs> Sorry, we, uh, you broke me. I don't have a good comeback for that. I, I just don't miss Flash. <laughs> I bet that's what broke my camera. Removing Flash did something to the camera driver. I'm just saying. <sighs> just saying, it is suspicious. We we killed it last episode, and this episode just not. Yeah, we're off the rails already. <laughs> But speaking of things that are on the rails, we do have some announcements. For example, in our upcoming webcasts and technical trainings, you will learn why you should stop trying to discover and classify data, how to thwart attackers using deception, and how to build a risk-based vulnerability management program. Visit securityweekly.com slash webcast to see what we have coming up, or visit securityweekly.com slash on demand to view our previously recorded webcasts. Would you like to have all of your favorite Security Weekly content at your fingertips? Do you want to hear from Sam and Andrea when we have upcoming webcasts and technical trainings? 
have a question for one of our illustrious hosts, someone from the Security Weekly team, or wish you could hang out with the Security Weekly crew and community, subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher, sign up for our mailing list, and join our Discord server to stay in the loop on all things Security Weekly. Visit securityweekly.com slash subscribe. And uh, with a bit of a mind flip and into a time slip, we're going to begin with the news this week. Um, and we have some news about money. Let's start with that. That's always, I think, an interesting thing that, get, uh, that gets Matt's attention. And we have kind of a pair of articles here. One is about uh, a Chinese hacking um, competition and uh, also uh, from Dark Reading, uh, some insights on bug bounty. But um, starting off about this uh, hacking competition, which is sort of like the uh, Pwn to Own, um, hosted in China. It was pretty interesting because it, uh, it awarded, sorry, about $1.2 million um, to a handful of teams that had up to 15 minutes to demonstrate their exploits. And I think the one thing that I always try to say here is that 15 minutes of exploits represents a large team working together and several months to get up to that point. So a team earning $750,000 almost, um, I would really love to know how that distributes over a, an hourly rate, for example. Yeah, it sounds shocking at first, but... Uh, um and I mean, it's it's got to be. It's it, the the photo on that article looks like it. It shows these guys up on stage. So I don't know if there was like people watching them do this. If it's like a spectator sport, like e gaming, um, I mean that's got to be sort of shocking to like you know see this device which everyone considers secure and suddenly like some kid comes along and bang, it's popped. Uh, but yeah, it takes a lot more than a lot more goes on behind the scenes. <laughs> Indeed, it does. And the other thing that stood out to me is that uh, there were, you know, unpatched phones. So these were zero days across a wide range of software. So you got personal systems, so iOS and browsers, for example. You know, business systems, which you could still call browsers on that, um, or business apps. I'm saying, but also we got rid of Flash, but Adobe PDF Reader is still out there. Um, also, some app foundations like Docker and QEMU. And um, even network devices, so some router firmware. So it's not like there was only this was all browsers all the time, um, or just an iOS and Android show. These were zero days across pretty much all the software you're going to run into, whether you're on your personal device or a business device. Yeah, I mean, I can rattle these off, right? I have an Asus wireless mesh in the house, brand new upgrade, and I'm pushing the firmware to do even more, and it got hacked. Okay, so that's out. Let's see. I got uh, the Windows 10 machine. My camera wasn't working this morning, so it, that was the April 2020 edition, but I'm pretty sure this thing got updated last week after the webcast, so that's now toast. Um, I, I, I am running uh, my iPhone, it's sitting right next to me, right? So I got the phone, so that that's toast. Let's see, I run a Chrome browser. Um, luckily, I'm not running any Docker or VMware right now, but yeah, I'm pretty hosed. <laughs> I, I bet between the three of us, the only thing we're not running is VMware. Probably. <laughs> that's possibly true. <laughs> well, don't look at us to be the experts. So long. Yep, yep, that was a short episode. We got time to go patch. Sorry, folks. Um, but it actually, but while, while John and I go and update our, our, our systems, uh, Matt, you pointed out another one. Uh, here's sort of, a, I think, a, um, an article about bug, bug bounty, bug hunting tips. And this one stood out for you. It's a good tie-in to this. 
Yeah, it did. You know, as I go through the news articles, usually over the weekend, because I'm pulling my articles for Business Security Weekly after this, I always run across a couple articles that I think are interesting for this show. So I'm like, oh, here's one. You know, here's the tips on, on how to go after bug bounties. And what I thought was interesting is they're trying to educate people here a little bit to say, be selective if you want to get into this bug bounty game, right? There's a lot of different programs. Don't chase the money. It gives you some really interesting tips. I mean, you see these lar this large payout in China. Uh, you know, they did, I think, 1.2 million total. The top team, almost $750,000 in payouts. So people are like, ooh, I want to become uh, a bug <laughs> bounty hunter and, and go out and hack these applications. It's just an interesting article for people to read to say, all right, if I'm going to do this, how should I approach it? Because there's some really great tips in here about, look, don't chase the money. Pick one of the programs that you're comfortable with that maybe has impact for you or your organization and kind of stick with it for a while. You know, learn the right tools and techniques. Um, so I, I, I thought it was a really good article that paired this, this whole Chinese hacking um, uh, program. Yeah, I, I think it does. And it's definitely one of those things that gives a little bit more um, realism to what to expect out of bug bounty programs. You can get lucky and out of the gate, find something really consequential and impactful and make a you know fair bit of coin off it. But um, on the other hand, you're also competing uh, with quite a few people. And so every time you show up and get that duplicate because somebody reported that vuln first, that's not great for your own hourly rate, for example. But um, to your point about find, you know, find an area that you're familiar with or find a type of vulnerability to go after. Um, one of the things that uh, the Google Project Zero goes after is a lot of the infrastructure and applications that people use or that, that organizations use on a daily basis. And now quite a bit of it falls into that um, of smartphones, browsers, of course. And in this case, they got some GitHub actions. And there were a couple of things that stood out to me, but one in particular, um, was that um, GitHub Actions, you know, they have their own hardening recommendations about how you should go about dealing with this type of capability. But Actions are basically a way to say, here are some events that are happening during your build process on GitHub. And it's pretty much watching the standard out of log messages to say, ah, there's something that I need to go trigger on. There's an event that I need to go do. And this uh, this particular write-up was being a bit pessimistic on whether or not you know GitHub Actions could even be securable in, in an effective manner. And so I thought that was a pretty interesting thing to think about. What I like about this article is two things. Number one, it ties to the previous article. The last tip that it gives you is go after a program that has a vulnerability disclosure program, maybe not even a payout. Yeah. Just go after a place where you can do vulnerability disclosure program because then you don't get in trouble for, for trying to go hack a, a site. So here you take Project Zero, right? Google's project that goes out, identifies this vulnerability and GitHub now owned by Microsoft has a vulnerability disclosure program. And they're like, Hey, it's been 104 days. Enough is enough. So I thought that was a really interesting first piece of this is because they get a little snarky with Microsoft and GitHub here to say, look, you've had 140, 104 days to fix this thing. I only had to give you 90. You've asked for an extension. My, my response is basically no. But then they get into the details, and, and Mike, they point out, look, the way these things are implemented is just inherently insecure. There may not be a fix for this. 
Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I'm not saying so it comes back a little bit to security theater, at least kind of in the spirit of it. Now, I'm not saying that there's security theater here with what GitHub is doing, but it's more the idea of did we build something and have security controls around it that actually work the way we expect? expected them to, or can they even work in the way we want them to? And if not, then maybe we got to step back, like you're saying, and reevaluate whether this, you know, this GitHub Actions or this type of capability is something we actually want to expose in the first place. Yeah, and it could require a complete rewrite of these actions, or what I think the article is kind of saying is, look, they're going to gradually just remove them because they're not quite sure how they're going to secure them. It's, it's sort of interesting, right? Because, I mean, think about it from AppSec. You know, if, if we went to one of the areas which probably gets the least amount of attention, it's sanitizing logs uh, for any application, right? So the line in here which got me when I, when I saw this is unless you trust the output from whatever that build program is. In other words, you basically got untrust output coming from the compiler or the build or whatever that build step is, you're looking at these logs and parsing them. So... If you can't trust that, how do you how do you how does GitHub then provide tools which are, um, I'll say, defensive or are able to work in that offensive environment? Uh, so it's it's you know something you know we usually don't think about putting lots of good details and useful information into build logs. I mean, how many years that we've been complaining about you know compiler errors and like syntax errors and stuff like that and what do they mean so you got that environment plus an environment where people don't think about actually cleaning things so um yeah it's a mixture of things it's definitely a mixture of things there's another tough part is they acknowledge that you're going to need secrets in order to make a lot of these actions actually useful so that they can talk to other potentially credentialed services and they say we have a way to redact the secrets but technically we can only redact the secrets if you give them to us raw if you accidentally put them into structured data um you know in a json blob or something like that we may miss that secret and it's going to get printed out to your log statement. And just as John was saying, now we have exposed, you know, something that, as the name implies, should have remained secret. So there's definitely a lot of gotchas in here. So it's just one of those trade-offs. How much do we enable better and more efficient engineering at the expense of a lot of really easy mistakes to make potentially that are pretty consequential from a security perspective? I think this, too, gives us talking about Volms. Uh, there's another uh, article that you highlighted, Matt, um, about containers in high-performance computing, but containers with – and the first time I read through this article, uh, the median amount of vulnerabilities were found was just over 300, and that made me a little bit skeptical or trying to figure out what the heck is going on inside them. Yeah, you know, we've we've talked about this in various uh, aspects before. We know that a lot of the open source components that we embed into our software, and sometimes we don't know it because they're, you know, they're kind of include statements from, from the container image, introduces a lot of potential vulnerabilities. What I thought was interesting here is they evaluated this on the research side for this high-performance computing environment and found a lot of pretty interesting kind of results, right? Uh, there, one image had 1,700 uh, vulnerabilities where some of them had none, right? And, and so we've talked about this supply chain, this dependency chain of all the software that gets included in these container images and the potential concern. You, you, you know, the, the median was 321 vulnerabilities. Uh, what are they using? 
are these things that that uh, we're using commonly and and are there, or are these very specific types of uh, open source software components that uh, are are just for this environment, and therefore they're they're more risky because nobody's looking at them at the same depth. I just thought it was some interesting research. Yeah, I, I think the, the take home message for me there was they they point out like Alpine Linux um, pretty much had no vulns basically because it also had very few software packages on it that were introducing these dependency problems. And that's these dependency, if you basically just updated the container, I think they said two thirds of the vulns just go away automatically. So there's a little bit of the aspect of have you installed more packages than you actually needed on these containers? Or have you just pulled down the containers but not bothered to update them and you're dealing with older systems? So a lot of it comes back to the idea of patch your systems, which I also kind of think plays into that aspect of patching, as well as our initial conversation about vulnerabilities can be expensive. I pulled out a pair of articles that were about kind of post-compromise scenarios, because I wanted to talk a little bit about the threat modeling from that perspective. But one thing that caught my eye, um, there was from um, Mandiant, um, FireEye, um, talking about a zero day that was purchased on the uh, dark market for $3,000. So this is a, uh, this is, they're, they're tying things together, but in a um, Oracle Solaris SSHD remote root exploit, $3,000. So this was something that it's, the, I, I wanted to highlight this in the sense of you don't necessarily need that super uh, expensive modern zero day for Chrome or Safari, iOS, Android. Go with the exploit that works. In this case, that's actually pretty cheap. And then the the, the write up explains, you know, all of the different steps that were taken once this initial compromise happened. Well, I think the reason it was only three thousand dollars because this was for Solaris. How many people are still running these <laughs> systems? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> It was more of a, we feel bad for you, you know, give your, give, buy, buy your administrators something nice for Christmas. But um, I think this one and the other article um, about an initial vector was um, a PHP vulnerability. But I, I did want to highlight them because it comes into that aspect of not necessarily just that initial vulnerability, but also look at what attackers are doing. And in your, whether it's your cloud environment, your AWS environment, how many restrictions do you have in a post-compromise scenario? Meaning, uh, avoiding things like lateral movement. Um, in the, the FireEye case, the, that blog post was pretty nice because they had a good list of the MITRE ATT&CK tactic categories near there at the end to kind of help you talk through with your DevOps team about what would our kill chain look like if our front-end web server were compromised or our SSHD Oracle or Solaris Bastion host was compromised? What could, what, what could then could happen from there? Um, so there's takeaway messages you could figure out of can we have multi-factor authentication? Because that would defeat a lot of the uh, raw credential logging that was part of this backdoor and other types of scenarios you might come up with. I sort of wonder if uh, PHP is next flash. In other Possibly. words, is that, the, is that the one? I mean, it's lasted about 10 years longer than I thought it would. Um, I mean, I was using PHP in the 90s. Come on now. Um, now... Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of systems out there running PHP. I mean, as I bad know. as it is, guys, right? I mean, you really think we're going to get rid of PHP anytime soon? 
Look, to his credit, PHB hasn't tried to go from a server-side language to a client-side language, unlike um, perhaps JavaScript, which jumped from our browser to server. So it could be worse. Um, But but I'm glad you... Just a real quick comment on that. I used to work with someone who, um, uh, Troy, if you're out there somewhere, hope you're doing well. Uh, He would actually write his cron jobs in PHP. Brave, brave man. But in this case, I did, speaking of PHP, and uh, not necessarily to unduly pick on the language, but um, part of the write-up was pretty interesting, and both these write-ups are really nice for the level of detail they have. And the initial problem here in this in this um, web app was that it had a type confusion. So in PHP, um, you could actually give a password parameter, essentially turn it into an array. And then on the server side, it would expect rather than a string literal, it would say, oh, I've just received an array. And that type confusion in a comparison statement would mess things up. The other thing that was weird, and actually I want to, the reason I'm setting that up is that that's possibly the type of thing that a linter or some type of, of SAS tool should ideally find. But there was also something a bit weird about that setup in that the application would set up your session then it would verify if your password is correct. And if it was bad, it was the wrong password, it would destroy the session. And if it was correct, it would let you go on forward. But that was a little bit wonky in the sense of why not verify the password first, then allow the session to set up and then go forward. And that's not the type of thing that a SaaS tool or some other type of automated checker is very likely to find. So I just thought that was a really interesting aspect of um, two different sides of a flaw that a tool should be able to find, but also a flaw that you should engage your AppSec team, your product security team, and do some you know human analysis to discover. Yeah, I think the, the initial attack vector on this one was a uh, bypass, uh, authentication bypass, right? To your point, right? You let the session yeah. come up before you validated authentication, which allowed this uh, second kind of phase to flow. Again, we talk about authentication. It's getting so much more complex these days, but it is a very effective attack vector in some of these attacks. It's probably becoming more so since, um, you know, as we go towards more cl- cloud type things, uh, I'm I think 2021 is going to be really interesting to look at uh, of all these different sort of mesh networks coming out, like uh, security networks that will, I'm, I'm missing the bonus words right now, sorry, but sort of different types of VPNs to allow better control over what you can do with that access. Um, I guess you could call it zero um, access, but it, I, I yeah. think that's hopefully going to help with a lot of right. this. Well, you got service mesh and SASE and zero trust and ML and AI. We'll throw out a few more buzz terms and we'll get <laughs> Yeah, Sassy is the one I was thinking of, but um, <laughs> well, I mean, because uh, otherwise, it's it seems like we've taken a step back, right, over the last year or two. Um, I mean, the OAuth and those type of things are should be helping and should be allowed to control it, but it it seems like this is is not going to go away pretty soon. No, not going to go away. And I think those are, you know, in the spirit of we do try to find articles that can educate and be relative relevant to systems. So even if you're not running PHP, I think set aside that initial injection flaw and just say, okay, your front end gets popped and here are all the bad things that could fall out to happen. Um, those are pretty much the same exercises you can go through regardless of what cloud environment you're on, regardless of what container strategy you've taken. So I think these are really good ways to do what's called, you know, call sort of a pre-mortem, if you will, and just model how could this happen to us and what would we do about it? 
Um, one of the other things that we've got, we've got one article I'm saving for the end because I think it's going to be fun. Um, <laughs> but I want to go to space um, first. And um, John, you actually, I think, highlighted this one. You've been been following the um, a fabulous acronym, by the way, the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel or NASA's ASAP. Um, talking about software quality, um, what, what stood out to you for this one? Come on, is, isn't space fun? Um, <laughs> yeah, th this, this was... So this is, uh, let me bring it up so I can talk to it a little more accurately, but this is really around, uh, you know, NASA's getting ready to to launch this this new uh, rocket up to the moon here pretty soon. And with most things governments uh, run in the last decade or two, there's all these different sort of um, subcontractors which are involved in actually putting this thing together. Uh, it, it turns out they're doing a little bit, probably too much of the rush rush with this guy, because what's actually happening is, as we're, you know, more and more software-based, all these different vendors and subcontractors are doing something which is software-based, expected to, to tie into the bigger software behemoth when this thing goes up onto you know 39A or where, whichever launch pad is going to. But they're not doing too much of the integrated testing between those pieces before they get up on that launch pad. So uh, the government organization, uh, the accountability office is sort of saying, hey, uh, um, we're a little worried about this. Uh, and, and that sounds like it, it might be sort of fair. This is something which probably come together and there'll be no problem, um, hopefully knock on wood and all that. But at the same time, uh, it, it's, you know, again, one of those examples when I look at the space stuff and bring it on here, it's very large organizations having sort of the same problem that we, we talk about in the smaller ends are the more, you know, standard large enterprises. It, it even hits the, the really big guys. Absolutely. And, you know, and very much, you know, this is an exceedingly great example of a, a consequence driven cyber informed engineering, the mm -hmm. CCE that we were talking about in IoT, industrial IoT a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I went in because I was feeling bored and it was unexciting. Um, I went and read through some of the, the meeting minutes of one of their recent um uh, public uh, public meetings that was posted, and a lot there were a couple things that stood out that sound just like you were saying could apply to organizations large and small. One was you know they were saying as the problem there's no end to end integrated in this case avionics but software integration capability. So they had multiple labs, emulators, and simulations being used to test subsets of the software, but not really understanding how they all fit together. And there was a great quote that could be I think applied to DevOps teams, SREs, security, they were saying flight systems should be developed for success with the goal to test like you fly in the same way that NASA's operations team train the way you fly, fly the way you train. And I think you could really swap out the, you know, the words there about, you know, build the software, secure the software, test the software, build the software, what have you, and um, just really good ideas to follow. It's, it's sort of surprising, I guess, because, you know, I think of I, I'm sure it's on here, and folks have heard me from years quote about the the old article. I think it was in Fortune, the right stuff, talking about the space shuttle and how careful they were. So to see the opposite of that happening here is, um, you know, and also kudos to you, man, for actually going and reading those meeting minutes. That that had to have been sort of torture. It, it was in, in a very geeky way. Um, <laughs> it was actually kind of fun and interesting. So, um, um, so, and I will have to now because time is fleeting. Madness takes its toll. I'm going to have to segue into our last article of the day, which is from um, was it from CERT about launching what they're called the uh, calling the Volno Nim because they want to stop the naming madness. Now their premise is that some vulnerabilities um, <clears throat> like uh, shell shock and others are becoming overhyped, overblown, and really really sounds scary. 
But if you go the opposite end of the spectrum, nobody knows CVE numbers, CVE 2020-12345. Who knows what that even stands for? And it's really hard to reference them. So, but Mike, um, but Mike, we yeah. used to. We used to memorize the numbers. <laughs> we did. Hell, we did I, when there I were... Think- when there were fewer numbers in a year, I think, you know, when you could have less than maybe a thousand, even less than a hundred in a year, maybe it was a little bit easier. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think we, if they're popular ones, I think we still do. I think what 169 from 2018 was one of the Docker exploits, which we used to do a POC for. So I think, um, I don't know. I, th- I think there's still some value. And at least to me, the numbers are a lot easier to keep track of than one of my comments in this article was, um, you know, it reminds me of Ubuntu and Debian over the last, what, decade or so. I can't keep track of what version of Debian is if you tell me it's trusty, jumper, or whatever the hell. I That that stuff goes straight through my head. So um, at least to me, the numbers seem to be a little more logical. Yeah, I mean, we I, do have I a would... valid point, Mike. I mean, we do have way more CVE numbers now than we've ever had. So I get it. But there are ones that kind of stick in the back of our heads like, yeah, we know that one, right? Uh, But the article, I love this article because, look, we've been hyping these vulnerabilities, right, for a while with with these different naming conventions. What they're trying to do is kind of level set this a little bit, I think. Um, We'll see how how well this works, though. Yeah, and I think, you know, to to your point, though, CVE numbers uh, translate pretty well, um, where if we start going with, you know, the naming, everything goes into English words. And if you go check out the Volanim Twitter feed, a lot of those words that they're the, the, the pairs that they're coming up with are even maybe a little bit questionable. Is that are, is this actually English or this is a bit obscure? And now, you know, from my perspective, I love this idea of pairing up words is great for code names. Um, it's great for your incident response investigations when you don't want to actually leak information about a subject and you're trying to get rid of context. But I would argue that even with the names uh, that people come up with branding, they carry a little bit of context that can be helpful. And I will stand firmly in the ground that all Bluetooth vulnerabilities must actually start with the word, you know, that, that has BL in the very beginning, because otherwise I'll be very disappointed. Right. I mean, you could almost do that with a bunch of them, right? You could have like, if this is a Windows vulnerability, it always has this part of a name in it, right? I mean, okay, then we'd all remember that that's the Windows one versus the Bluetooth one versus the this, that, or the other thing. Um, Again, we'll see how this works. But look, marketing teams will always do their best to find a name that they can wrap all their FUD around. I, I think looking, you're right. And I, I, oh, go ahead, John. Sorry, quickly. I'm 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 reading through this Twitter list, which is sort of fun, and I'm thinking about the next RSA, whether that's 2021, 2022, whenever. But I'm looking forward to seeing the marketing and boost for um, dismissive mammal and slash partridge and twisting narica. So I'm I'm really <laughs> looking forward to seeing you know big boost with like you know something like that. But, Exactly. That's going to be the um, the, the the what the, the startup alley for um, all of the the security company names. <laughs> but um, I think you know one of the things, Matt, you were definitely going down the road of you know marketing teams and getting too much fud, and that's definitely a problem to to identify with the the overhyped branding. And we have seen that with um, I can't remember which of that it was one of the SMB exploits. Um, I want to say five or six years ago. But there's also, and another reason I want to pull this out, there's also a problem here or a challenge here to go after messaging. How do you do 
security communication. And this, we're talking with, you know, vulnerability naming at very much the grand stage. But this, you know, this, this communicating security is also on a small scale, a security team talking to a DevOps team. We're talking within an organization. And it's the idea of, are you just rattling off CVE numbers that people remember, that they recognize, or they know this is something to deal with? And I also wanted to pull out a little bit of a parallel here with one um, articles talk about CVSS numbers. For example, scoring the perfect 10 on a CVSS. What does that really mean? Because it's not really a perfect 10. It just means that's a critical vulnerability. Sort of the same thing of, do we really care about the difference between a CVSS 9.6 and a 9.7? What does that decimal point actually really mean? Other than we should just go and fix something. So the naming, the scores, they do lose a lot of context. But I don't have a good idea right now exactly how to, what are the succinct ways to pull that context back in? Yeah, but I mean, we, so we did a webcast on metrics and KPIs and stuff last week uh, with DeepWatch, and we talked a little bit about the language and how you communicate. If we're communicating at CVE levels, at certain levels of the organization, we're missing the mark holistically, right? So I think communication depends on which audience, right? Maybe with the yeah. DevOps teams, we need to be a little more granular in the vulnerability, the aspects of the vulnerabilities, maybe the CVE number, the score, or aspects of it. But if we're having that conversation at the executive level or the board level, people, we are missing the boat big time. That's a totally fantastic good. point. Who's the audience? Yeah, yeah, that makes a huge difference. So, um, yeah, th that, that seems like such a great thing to end on. But I did want to say before we do end, maybe we could also set up a security weekly, you know, uh, name vulnerability naming generator. And each of us could pick one word. And that's just, you know, how we how we go and name them. So, John, you already were looking them up. So you get the, the first uh, first attack at the uh, next CVE that comes out in our next episode we cover. Uh, I'm looking at snow. So I'll say snowy. <laughs> Snowy sounds good. We'll throw it over to Matt for the second word, and then we—that's what we have for our next CVE. Uh, it's cloudy out, so snowy clouds. There we go. Everybody, go and patch your snowy cloud because that's what the vulnerability <laughs> of the week is. <laughs> and hey, we may not be that far off. There might be some cloud service with snow in it that you know Amazon just released and it has a vulnerability, so we might actually be close. <laughs> There we go. Yes. Yeah, so what is it? Um, life imitates art. There we are. Well, I think speaking of knowing our audience, I think it's also important to know that uh, who to thank. And we want to thank you all for joining us to listen. Also want to thank Matt and John once again. We do have our interview coming up with Keith and it's a pre-recorded interview. So that's why mysteriously Matt is going to disappear. But of course, we always love having Matt, having Matt with us. So give us a moment to take a quick regeneration and return for our interview with Keith. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash signal sciences.
In a fast-paced tech environment, the potential attack surface increases with each release and new app created. Detectify automates cutting-edge knowledge from trusted ethical hackers into the development pipeline for reliable application security. Go beyond the OWASP Top 10. Check your web apps for over 2,000 known vulnerabilities actively exploited in the wild, monitor subdomains for potential takeovers, and remediate security issues in staging and production. Learn more with a free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash Detectify. Go hack yourself. By connecting to your code repository, Actrix generates a topology across your full stack to reveal risks so that you can harden your architecture. It also scans code for violations against compliance and security standards to enforce best practices. In addition, Actrix develops threat models using vulnerability feeds, IAM privileges, and other data to predict potential breach paths. Learn how easy it is to get started with Acurix at securityweekly.com forward slash Acurix. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by John Kinsella. Join Ahmed Berket, co-founder and CEO of Perimeter 81 and Paul Asadorian for a technical deep dive into the problems inherent in legacy VPN technology. Together, they will explore solutions for the modern workforce and how momentum toward perimeterless architecture is helping redefine the future of cybersecurity. Register now by visiting securityweekly.com slash perimeter81. Security Weekly, in partnership with Cyber Risk Alliance, is excited to present Security Weekly Unlocked on December 10th, 2020. This one-day virtual event wraps up with the 15th anniversary edition of Pulse Security Weekly live on YouTube. Visit securityweekly.com unlocked to view the agenda and register for free. Keith Hoodlett is the Senior Manager of DevSecOps within Corporate Information Security at Thermo Fisher Scientific, a global enterprise seeking to make the world healthier, cleaner, and safer. Named as one of the world's 50 influential DevSecOps professionals, Keith has worked on projects such as the Application Security Weekly podcast from the very beginning all the way to episode 55. Go back and give him a listen. As well as the renewed InfoSec Mentors Project, where he acts as founder and CTO. Keith is also known for his work as an ethical hacker and top 200 security researcher MVP on the Bug Crowd platform. Hello, Keith, and thank you for coming back to join us. Hey, Mike. Uh, very good to see you and John. It's uh, been a long time. It's a little interesting being on this side of the table, as it were, although I think we're all kind of on our own weird sides of the table now that uh, the world's in the state that it's in. But uh, very good to be back. Thank you. That's right. It's time for you to start answering all of the questions. So uh, let's start <laughs> off, though, Keith. Um, you know, it, it's been a while since since you've been here. What have you been up to? Like a lot of your fans, a lot of listeners want to know. Yeah, it's um, gosh, I think it was around April or May of uh, 2019 that I, I departed and, and made way for you and, and the folks here at Security Weekly to take on the mantle and continue it forward. Really glad to hear that the show is still, you know, wildly successful. And it's it's great to see, uh, you know, sponsors like Signal Sciences who were there from the beginning still, you know, participating in, in the show and, and being part of this. So, uh, gosh, you know, a lot, right? So so right around the time that I was uh, transitioning off of the show, I was still only manager of DevSecOps uh, at Thermo Fisher Scientific. And uh, later into that year, as, a, as the program continued to grow and we continued to hire new people, uh, I, I became the senior manager of global DevSecOps. And so 
uh, that was that was pretty wild um, because for me it's it was a situation where uh, you know within a year of joining Thermo Fisher, I was stepping into uh, a much larger role with a lot more influence. Uh, we had really built out the program in in a pretty solid way from a foundational expectations uh, standpoint, and then um, going into later into 2019 and then early into 2020, it was kind of like running like a Swiss watch, um, and so. Recently, uh, actually, and it wasn't part of your interest, so apologies on my part for not not providing this earlier. Uh, back in April of this year, I became senior manager of application experience at Thermo Fisher, um, which for a lot of people would be kind of the traditional IT operations uh, application footprint within uh, you know large enterprise companies. So right now, I'm responsible for. Um, Gosh, uh, I use the acronym COST uh, somewhat sparingly, but also jokingly because it's the conference, office, and service technologies within the organization, um, which are you know WebEx, Zoom, Teams, uh, pretty much everything in the Microsoft space, SharePoint, Exchange, uh, you know, getting licensing for all the stuff in Microsoft, Azure, et cetera, et cetera, um, as well as ServiceNow, uh, which is kind of that traditional IT service management solution uh, used in many enterprise organizations. And it's almost, it's weird, right? At first I was like, okay, I'm, I'm a security guy, like reporting live from inside the business. Uh, and, and suddenly like in the middle of a global pandemic, I'm responsible for all of the things that allow the business to continue to run uh, in, in function remotely for all of these, you know, 80, 75 or 80,000 some odd employees uh, at the company. And it's just like, okay, yeah, email goes down, we've got a big problem. Uh, and I'm going to hear it from my CISO and my CIO pretty quickly if, if things don't get fixed. Uh, and, you know, in that time, in the past, gosh, seven months or so, uh, we see things like the major outage uh, at Microsoft Azure for their AD authentication, which broke like everything globally. Uh, and, and of course, like I'm the guy that's that's now kind of spearheading the the kind of internal incident management response with all of my senior leaders from the company on the call, like talking about, okay, there's not a whole lot we can do. It's a cloud service, but uh, you know, and on and on. Right. So it has been a, a very interesting year and a half or so since I've been back on the show. Uh, and it is, I've learned a lot, honestly, you know, in terms of being a manager uh, in terms of what it means to run an IT operations organization, um, in terms of how you can actually apply DevOps and Agile principles to things like running ServiceNow and developing on that platform. Um, it, it's, it's different. It's a little weird. I miss security. I'm not going to lie. I still really enjoy talking about and, and thinking about security. I'm going to be giving a conference talk uh, you know, in December uh, on just that. Uh, but at the same time, I have a, a profound respect and a new perspective for the challenges that uh, businesses face in IT operations. You know, Keith, what it might be worth just, spending 30 seconds, sorry, Mike, um, just let folks know, you know, a little bit about uh, Thermo Fisher. Because when I think of Fisher Scientific, which I think used to be a separate company, right? I think of yeah. like a company that sells test tubes and stuff like that. So I, I think just from a point of view of allowing folks to understand why, you know, this dude is over at doing AppSec and now management at a, a scientific company, just give a little bit of a, a spectrum of some of the things you guys work on. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. So uh, I'll, I'll try to give the 10,000 foot view maybe, uh, but <laughs> in terms of, of uh, COVID, maybe that's the, the most 
the thing that people are going to, to kind of be most impacted by in their lives globally today. Thermo Fisher Scientific and Fisher Scientific and Thermo Electron did uh, merge back in, I think, 2006-ish. Um, not up on my company history, but it was well before I joined. Um, we make everything from personal protective equipment, masks, gowns, gloves, things like that, to... Um, you know, antibacterial like hand lotion and things like that to, to kind of clean people's hands to the plastic Petri dishes that they use to do tests to the pipettes and uh, or pipettes and test tube things that they actually, uh, you know, run tests in to uh, viral vector media, uh, which is what you actually transport like samples of COVID-19 samples in to go get tested at a laboratory to determine if you're positive or negative for COVID, um, as well as the devices that they actually run the tests in themselves. So we uh, serve everything from the you know hospital community, medical laboratory community, drug testing community, um, forensics community from a, a uh, you know, police and detective work perspective, um, as well as, of course, uh, athletic testing, right? So like drug testing that you might have at, say, the Olympics, uh, as an example of the sorts of things that, you know, those laboratories use Thermo Fisher devices. Um, and, and as you can imagine, right, uh, there are certain countries out in the world that don't like the way that their tests go uh, from a drug testing perspective. <laughs> so if those are happening on our devices, well, those devices need to be secure because if that organization or if that laboratory is compromised in some way, we don't want that compromise to happen as a result of Thermo Fisher's uh, you know, security of their product or the way that we built the product from the ground up to be secure uh, from the get-go. And so, so from a, a security perspective for me, it was, it was interesting because back in, uh, 2018, shortly after the show had started, uh, I was actually challenged by a good friend of mine and now my, my boss, uh, Brian to go ahead and, and basically put up or shut up, right? I could sit here on the show and talk about all these great things and DevOps and security and kind of doing all these things right. Um, but could I actually do it at a Fortune 200, now Fortune 150 uh, global enterprise where I could actually implement security? And I was like, yeah, of course I can, sure. Um, <laughs> and to your point, John, you know, I could talk big, but at the end of the day, coming into Thermo Fisher, they had a, a fairly small security organization at the time uh, back in 2018. It had been consolidated as a corporate function at that point, whereas I think it had been um, within the different divisions of the company prior to it was kind of, you know, siloed off in the different groups. And, and by groups, I mean, from an organization structure, we focus around about five different group kind of structures. They're only, they're kind of like their own companies in their, that regard. Um, and they focus on certain areas of science, analytical instruments or specialty diagnostics or pharma services or, or, you know, what have you. And then within each of those groups are divisions that focus on very specific elements of science, like material and structural analysis. Uh, they might be used by like a, a company, like, I don't know, anybody from say, uh, Intel to other companies out in the world that are trying to determine the quality of the the silicon chips that they're making, as an example, right? Mm -hmm. So, so we work in so many different areas of science, and, and there are so many customers that we have that are reliant on the security of our devices to ensure that their intellectual property isn't compromised, that the uh, results that they produce uh, from a forensic standpoint aren't compromised. Um, but then also, of course, that you're, you're not interrupting any sort of important work today like COVID testing, right? The, the ability to determine if someone has COVID in, in being able to do then tracing of that person's contacts um, could save 
tens, hundreds, thousands of lives in a community. Uh, and I find that to be profoundly important. Now that, that, yeah, that sense of mission sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, the, yeah. it definitely drives a great purpose for, um, for the type of work you're doing. And I'm curious too, because you were describing that it sounded like in the very beginning, it was, you know, somewhat nascent program. You're building up a program. So I'm kind of curious too, um, what were, was there a particular surprise or was there something that was actually made easier because you'd been talking about it perhaps quite a bit on, on the podcast. And then when it, came time to actually build up a program and, and work with the developers, bring them together, establish great security. There was something that really stood out to you as like, ah, here is, I, I'm glad I made this choice, or I wish I had perhaps emphasized this other thing a bit more when starting off a program like this. That's a great question, Mike. And, and when it comes to um, building a program, the thing that I found is most profound uh, of all of the technology solutions that we could build, uh, of all of the different you know processes that we could implement, the most important thing actually was around the people. Uh, and it's it, I say that because for the most talented people that I brought into the program to really build up this idea of security as a part of the development process. Uh, those people are traditional software developers. Uh, in fact, uh, several of them were direct out of college, you know, computer science majors uh, that had never been through uh, a software engineering role uh, at other large companies ever. Uh, and I'll tell you, the ability to um, just have young minds that are you know, really hungry to learn and to show that they have the ability to do some of these things and then to kind of set them loose on, okay, you know, you understand the fundamentals of, of developing software, um, but let's go ahead and, and actually have you now go and um, build security into that software, build security into the process and making it available via API calls or, um, you know, making it something where you could, could go ahead and just like interface with that tool set really easily uh, directly in your code, for example, as a, something that was embedded. And that I think was for me the greatest lesson uh, in in being a manager. I always say, as as a leader, the most important things you do you do, and there's really there's several of them, but I think the most important things that you do is first hire great people. Um, now I, I hired some really phenomenal security talent as well. I, I will say I had uh, a couple of individuals join the team in November of uh, 2018, shortly after I hired my very first person uh, in October of that month prior. And they were both just kind of, you know, died in the wall security people. Uh, one of them was a, a guy who reported a vulnerability on a device to us that we've since fixed. Uh, and, you know, it's, of course, we would have fixed it because it's been quite a while since uh, since that, that report came in. But he was emigrating from Ireland and he was moving into uh, Colorado and he, his wife was a, a, an American citizen. So he was able to kind of go through that process with the green card and come come over and as soon as uh, we ended up identifying, you know, that he was a, a potential opportunity to come on board, we're like, yeah, let's let's hire this guy. And he's since joined our, our product security organization under Jay Radcliffe, who used to work at Rapid7 uh, and is, is a fairly famous hacker for hacking his insulin pump and then uh, presenting on it at Black Hat some years ago. So um, I, I would say that hiring people uh, is the most important thing that you do as a leader uh, in, in hiring good people, right? Like 
people that are hungry to learn, people that are eager to show off the skills that they have and, and be able to work as a team is super important. The next and most important thing is keeping them engaged, challenged, and growing, right? Like uh, hiring great people and then having them do really silly or menial tasks uh, is you'll lose that talent faster than you hired it. Uh, and it's it's one of those things that thankfully I didn't have to learn that lesson because um, the team that I, I brought in has been just absolutely phenomenal. Um, and then of course, the, the third and most important thing I think in that process of bringing them in and then keeping them engaged is continuing to make sure they have the tools that they need to do the job. Um, whether that's training, whether that's uh, making sure that they can go to conferences, whether that's making sure that they can uh, you know, actually implement some of the security things that you're trying to do. Um, and then letting them tell you what works and what doesn't, right? Like at the end of the day, I remember looking at static analysis tools um, and I, you know, full disclosure, used to work at Veracode briefly as a code security engineer, uh, QAing their binary static analysis tool, which is, you know, kind of what really started the, the field of binary static analysis as far as I understand. And I, I brought in kind of all the vendors, right? I, all the traditional people that, you know, there's uh, check marks, there's um, uh, Fortify, you know, there's Veracode, there's others, right? And I let them tell me uh, what actually worked. And what actually worked well, um, because I, you know, to your point, Mike, being on the show, I had opinions. I had a lot of opinions, uh, but as a leader, the the <laughs> hardest pill to swallow is knowing that you know what. At the end of the day, I don't have to implement the tool, and I might not be right. Um, so, so that was that was a, a really great lesson for me. It was uh, really bringing that in uh, and letting the team tell me what worked, and then saying, "Okay, go implement it, go do it," and empowering them, right? Like and making sure that they felt like they had all of the the kind of um, intent from me as to what we wanted to accomplish and then let them go in and actually show that they can do it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a journey, honestly. And, and management is one of those things where honestly, there's, there's no class for it. I mean, sure. You could go get an MBA maybe. Right. Um, but that's going to teach you the finance elements. That's going to teach you like the legal elements probably. Um, but it's not going to teach you the art of management. Uh, and, and that's, that's something that you have to kind of experience. And sure, you could read some books to help you get ideas. Um, but but it's one of those things where if you hire great people, you keep them challenged, engaged, and growing and support them with the right tools uh, and kind of the right funding needs that they have as a team to get the job done, you'll be wildly successful no matter what you're doing. Yeah, I, I love that, you, that your your emphasis right off the bat there was on the people because that's you know a common theme of security, DevOps, DevSecOps is empathy for developers. But yeah. and you're highlighting there near the end there too. I don't want to gloss over the fact that you've also I think you know it sounds like very much transitioned into a management role, which again is you were describing there at the end just now empathy for you know um for, for for the team. What are people doing? What keeps them motivated? I'm curious if, if is there is there additional advice, some, some, you know, a, a one or two sort of lessons learned or something that you would share for people who do want to consider moving, making that transition within the security community to managing a, a security team? Absolutely. So I think that the, the biggest and most important thing that I recommend for anybody that's in a technical field to, to go do is read the book by Camille Fournier called The Manager's Path. Um, I'll tell you, for me, I, I hadn't read it until almost a year into uh, being in my role as a, at that point as a senior leader. And 
the funniest thing is when you have a small team, it's actually kind of easy. You can you can mostly wing it, right? You, you have your weekly one-on-ones with the team. <laughs> you have your objectives and key results and you, and you kind of keep a track on that. You have your, your planning of your roadmap and what things you want to accomplish over the next 12 months. Um, but it's, it's not super hard, right? As long as you can go in and build fairly decent presentations for your leadership as to where you're going, what you're trying to do, what your team is doing, what your team needs to be doing, uh, what's preventing them from doing that. And then also, you know, kind of the growth trajectory that you might expect to be successful in the work that you're trying to do. Beyond that, it's it's not terribly hard as long as you have some idea of the field that you're working in and the things that you're trying to accomplish. Um, but when you get into that senior management position, you suddenly have to start thinking about relationships, right? So it's not just your team now, but it's your relationships with your peers. It's your relationships with uh, the people that you can cause pain for, or the people that can cause pain for you. Uh, you need to to make sure that you're empathizing with and, and providing um, kind of early and often feedback to those people to make sure that they understand kind of what your priorities are, what your intents are, so that you're, you're not, um, you know, catching them off guard. But then also, uh, just making sure that you've built a rapport with these people so that when you come to them and you give them an early look at a problem that you're identifying uh, so that they can go ahead and have their team address it and that they know that you know that their boss is probably going to be calling them to address it as soon as it gets raised, that matters. Like that matters a lot more than than you know the the quality of the program in a lot of ways because at the end of the day, the relationships that you have, um, will define the success that you have in the long term. It will it will help you make sure that the vulnerabilities that you're bringing forward actually get addressed. It'll help you make sure that uh, you know time is allocated to dealing with uh, legacy technical debt, or uh, as I've said in on other shows in the Security Weekly Network, technical inflation, as I like to call it. Um, and at the end of the day, I think that if you build good relationships as a manager and you do enough work to understand the challenges your people are facing, but then also the things that you could be doing better, right? A, a bad process will defeat good people every time. Uh, and so it's, it's identifying what is a potentially a better process. How could I experiment with something to make sure that it actually will work? Uh, and how can I experiment in small ways? It's all kind of those those ideas of DevOps applied to management, right? Fast flow, rapid feedback, continuous learning. Well, what can I experiment with? How small can I make it so that I can get uh, a fast turnaround to determine that it's working? Um, and how can I continue to learn from those things that I'm experimenting with to ensure that we're moving forward, we're growing? Um, a lot of times, again, you know, with great talent, if they stagnate, they leave because they they want to keep growing. Everybody wants to keep learning new things. Uh, and so that's, that's, I think, uh, where I would go next is, is definitely looking at, okay, if you want to transition into leadership, knowing the technology and knowing the, the problems in the space, super important, right? Like you actually need to know how to do those things. Um, but at the end of the day, if you want to get it further in your management career, Camille Fournier's book, The Manager's Path, uh, makes a huge difference in terms of just understanding the challenges you're going to face at different levels as a senior individual contributor, as a, you know, frontline manager, a senior manager, a director and onward. And, and also um, one of the things that the book talks about that it's easy to forget is as you get higher up into that leadership chain, you can pull the air out of a room really easily um, just by being there. You don't even have to say anything. Uh, and that's, yeah. that's probably the the thing that I've had to learn the most is, 
you know, when you enter the room as a senior leader, you will change the flow of the conversation, whether you like to or not. Uh, so you have to determine not only when you're present, but purposefully when you're absent. And also uh, specifically that you're not working on the weekends or sending emails because an email that you send will cascade down into other people's email inboxes and work that needs to happen. And then people working nights and weekends when you never intended for them to do that. Uh, as a senior manager, you can you can reasonably expect to check your email on a Friday night or a Saturday. Um, delayed send is your friend. Is <laughs> the, the one thing that I would <laughs> add to that. Uh, now, in, in the spirit of controlling the flow of the conversation, I, you sure. also mentioned uh, I'm going to switch up, switch us a, a little bit because you also mentioned too that you you have a few opinions on, on security, and um, you also mentioned, for example, learning, and and you also mentioned. So I'm working in threes here that um, you had a presentation you'd been working on. So tell us a little bit more about um, you know your 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 external speaking, and you know we want to do still hear what's going on in the mind of Keith. Sure, sure. It's a great question, Mike. So um, the biggest thing that I'm working on right now, and, and it's funny, I've had it on my Twitter profile for a while, and I've been kind of ranting on Twitter about it every now and then. I try not to tweet too much these days. I'm trying to trying to pull back on the social media a bit, um, is this whole idea of security is a feature. Uh, and it, it's, it's weird because a lot of people are like, no, security is like, it's a separate process. It's a separate team. It's a separate organization. It's a separate budget. And, uh, it, you know, a feature is being able to leave comments or add video or center, uh, an icon, right? Um, it's not security. And, and the funniest thing is, is I come back to things like, um, utilities, water in the faucets, electricity, uh, in the outlets on the wall, um, you wouldn't buy a house if it didn't have faucets or electricity. Those are features of the house, but you expect them to be there. Nobody asks for those things. It's like, yeah, you expect to be able to, you know, have running water, have heat, ha or you know, air conditioning, depending on where you live, uh, as well as, of course, having the electricity come out of the walls when you plug something in, or your Wi-Fi working when uh, when you set it up, right? Um, and and the way that I go about discussing this uh, with kind of disbelievers, right? When I, I go to developers and I say security is a feature, and they go, yeah, no. Being able to <laughs> to you know check the dependencies on my my packages to determine if I've got vulnerabilities is a feature. Security is not a feature, uh, and it's well actually, uh, you know, I li I like to step back and say, okay, do you have a banking app on your phone? And if in Japan, not the case, most people still use cash there, but in other parts of the world, uh, you know, banking, mobile banking or online banking is kind of normal, uh, especially in the Western, uh, you know, Western world in the United States, parts of Europe. And I asked them, would you use it if it had the vulnerabilities that your application has? And they kind of look at you like, what did you just say? Like, like you're either insulting them, they're ashamed, uh, they're angry at you, or, or they're actually like, Oh, like, okay, good point. Um, and so I'm working on a conference talk for GitHub Universe coming up next month uh, in December uh, called Security as a Feature. And, and I'm going to be talking about the idea of security as a feature from a product management software development standpoint means it gets funded, right? So funding usually determines what gets worked on, uh, but it also gets resources. And sometimes that is funding, but oftentimes that's time and people, right? You actually dedicate uh, investments in how you perform that, that task, right? Um, and then it also tends to be tested and maintained, right? That once you've built a feature, you don't want that feature to stop working unless, of course, you plan to totally deprecate that area of the site and then just move on to something else. Um, but 
by thinking of security as a feature, it gets continuously invested in, continuously tested, maintained, updated. And I go back to, uh, I forget, I think it was in 2018, but it might've been in, in 2017 or 2019. I don't honestly recall, but there was an episode of Paul Security Weekly that I was on um, where we were talking about these uh, air raid sirens uh, in Dallas, the greater Dallas area of Texas here in the United States. And they were built back in the 60s and 70s as an early warning system of some sort of like nuclear strike or intercontinental ballistic missile or, you know, some sort of Cold War, Cold War events uh, that could take place. And that these sirens were put in place by the military to be able to alert the little, local populace and kick off the, you know, Patriot uh, defense shield system and, and kind of all these other things. And a couple of years ago, someone using the software-defined radio was able to actually set those things off in the middle of the night. Uh, and thankfully, no international incidents happened and, you know, people didn't uh, kind of suddenly go on alert and, and freak out. I mean, maybe some people did, but hopefully, uh, you know, not people high up in the military because they recognized it wasn't them actually sending the signal. But it, it came back to this idea that um, it's either technical inflation or technical depreciation. You could call it one of the two things. The idea, though, was... These things were built at a time where nobody had access to the wavelengths necessary to be able to send them signals and operate uh, these sirens. And then suddenly, you know, here we are in the call it 2010s, and you've got software-defined radio where anyone could effectively operate at any bandwidth that they really wanted to. Now, legally is an entirely other concern, and I'm not a lawyer, but the fact that they could make uh, devices kind of send signals at a frequency that they shouldn't be able to and then kick these things off. Well, security was a feature. It was built at a time where people weren't thinking about the problems that could happen if these things went off in the middle of the night and suddenly an, in an international incident took place, but it didn't get continuously invested in. It, it just kind of was set up and then they just let it run. And that's often how security ends up being implemented in a lot of places. They set up the firewall and then they move on. Uh, they set up static analysis and then they don't do anything with the results. They set up a bug bounty program and they pay bug bounties and then they sit on the bugs. And it's just like, no, if security was a feature, you'd be allocating time to it. You'd be allocating resources to it. Uh, you, you'd actually be hiring people into your development teams that are security professionals uh, or at least have a basic understanding of security. The model that I use for this. And it's it's somewhat ironic because I work at a company that provides uh, products to this space, but I use the hospital model of security. And I don't mean like the administrative people or the lawyers or the finance people. I mean like, you know, nurses, doctors, surgeons, pediatricians, right? Right now, in a lot of places, security are either ambulance drivers or ambulance chasers, right? They, they're the people that will make sure that the person in the ambulance stays alive but they don't actually help them get better. Uh, those are all the people that are in the hospital that are actually responsible for that. And I, I feel like in a lot of ways, security professionals need to become part of the hospital staff. We need to be like neurosurgeons, right? We need to be specialists that know how to write software, that uh, develop security solutions with the software development teams and work in the hospital. We have a basic understanding of development, but we're a specialist. And in a lot of ways as well, the software developers need to have a basic understanding of security, just like, you know, nurses, doctors, pediatricians all have a basic understanding of medicine. Uh, and that's, that's really where I go with a lot of these, these discussions is this whole idea of 
Security is a feature that you need to invest in, that you need to continuously develop, uh, that you need to make sure that you're hiring talent to maintain it, uh, and that you're allocating time to it because these things take time and they're always going to take time. Uh, And if you stop investing in it at any point in the process, well, you're either going to get that depreciation or that inflation. One of the two is going to happen. And suddenly you're going to find yourself in a bad spot where you're going to need to do a lot of updates and pay a lot of money to do it. Mm. So Keith, (laughs) as... Go ahead, John. Sorry, we we keep talking at the same time. Um, As... um, you know, let, let's bring those two together now. You're talking about, you know, a life is a, a renewed life as a manager versus, you know, um, this great talk coming up with your manager hat on. How do you sell? Talk about how you would you sell um, thinking about these things as, as features, not so much to your devs, but you still need to get that budget for time or resources, but to other management and the rest of the company. Yeah, that's that is the real challenge, John. At the end of the day, um, Oftentimes, when you think about investment uh, from a company perspective, it's a risk reward, right? Like you're kind of doing a trade-off. And when it comes to security, there's always likelihood versus impact, right? That's how you measure your risk. Impact is almost never going to change, right? Like if if uh, having if you're Equifax and having your database t- stolen of all the data that you have on, you know millions of Americans and their credit scores and all that other information, that impact is always going to be the same no matter what happens. Like if if uh, someone steals it or if that goes offline and becomes inaccessible to you or you know any number of other situations that could happen, that's still a huge impact. So when it comes to the business elements, you have to think about uh, the likelihood, right? Like that's that's the only thing that you really control here. And oftentimes, and especially you know with this show, right, you think about well, where is the biggest footprint of problems uh, today? Web and mobile, right? Because that's your greatest exposure. It's not like someone can break into your house, steal your laptop, and then steal all the secrets. Hopefully your laptop's encrypted, but I mean, it could happen, but it's very local, right? It's it's one person or a group of people and it's one impact. You're not going to see that across an entire company all at once, right? That, that would take hundreds of thousands of people, like literally an army to do that sort of thing. But where are the crown jewels for most of these companies today? They're online, right? Like think about a um, good example, Domino's, right? Like uh, one of those things that a lot of businesses were impacted by the sudden shift to online business. Domino's is like, no, we're just fine. We have a really great online ordering app. We have a really great system for delivery or pickup or you know, p- people bringing it literally to your car. Uh, and we're all trusting that when I go and I pay, that I, I can do so securely. And so, so I think that that's, that's where you have to start talking to the business about, well, what are you doing to address these, these problems? And also tracking, tracking them from a data perspective, right? So uh, one of the things that I've learned as a, as a leader is putting metrics behind all of the things that you're talking about drives outcomes and results, right? If you're able to show the picture, not only from the day to day, but from the month to month, week to week, year to year, you know, what have you, um, you can start to really show how things are getting better or how things are getting worse and the trends associated with that. Uh, And one of the things that I often see today is unlike that 1960s sirens uh, situation, the software development lifecycle is getting faster the release uh, uh, timelines are getting faster. And also at the same time, 
the breaking timelines are getting faster, right? I mean, look at how many um, uh, you know cryptocurrency contracts have been breached uh, and just totally taken over from a, a you know theft perspective in the last few years. Well, that that whole industry is moving very fast, but as is all of uh, the attacks that are taking place and the breaking the kind of break fix situations that are taking place. And so, I think that that's what you have to really look at is what is your development cycle? Is it six months? Is it a year? Is it you know heaven forbid a few years? Um, but then also, what are the investments that you're making into that thing, right? If you're if you're putting a billion dollar product on the market, maybe it's a you know giant uh, MRI or CAT scan machine or something like that, right? Well, you'd hope that if someone's spending you know multi million dollars to put this thing in a high impact environment like a hospital, that you're going to spend at least one percent of your budget in terms of the time and investment for security. Probably more like five or ten percent if you're if you're really doing it well and maintaining it, um, and and that's really what it comes down to is likelihood low uh, because especially in a hospital hopefully they've segmented their networks not always we've seen a lot of ransomware re- recently and so that can be a real problem um, but impacts really really high and and you know just one incident of one of those things going offline or worse you know going offline and never being able to come back up. Um, is there's a balancing point where eventually it makes more sense to just buy a new one. Uh, but at the same time, you want to get as much value out of that thing as you can, which is why, by the way, whenever you go to get like an X-ray or more likely like a CAT scan or an MRI, it takes you sometimes days to get in because they're booking those things out 24 by seven. Uh, so you, you have no pouch, you know, uh, patch window, no update cycle, no, uh, you know, kind of things that are happening there. And so I think when it comes to to getting management buy-in, um, building personal relationships to those people who make those decisions is is your first step, right? Helping them understand your intent, your desire, the outcomes, the potential pitfalls, and making sure that everyone knows about events happening in the world and the cycle that they happen in, uh, which tends to be faster these days. Uh, but then also, you know, talking about the just the outcomes of you know res- resolution timing. Every company out there, especially if they're resolving incidents as they take place or resolving issues before they become an incident, knows almost always they happen as an emergency. Um, you look at the uh, Apache Struts 2 vulnerability that came out in 2018, right? Very similar to the one that hacked Equifax, very similar uh, in the attack vector and the outcomes that could happen as a result. Everyone reacted to that as an emergency. Well, how many people, how many hours, uh, and, and you know what features or what other things uh, were pushed aside to make that happen. And that's, I think, ultimately where it's it's hard value uh, to to determine, but it, it drives decisions uh, profoundly. Uh, and it's something that I've actually adopted to my more, uh, more recent role change within the organization, which is driving business value, right? As a security professional, the hardest thing that you can try to measure is the business value that you produce. But if you can, you are you know light years ahead of of those organizations that can't. Because for us, like my ServiceNow organization, as an example, we had to prioritize because everyone wants development on that platform, and it's a very small team. So we had to prioritize what do we work on first, right? That's always if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. So we need to determine what's worth working on. And the way that we did that is we actually made people put down the business value of the outcomes that they were producing with the thing that they were asking for. 
And that could be business value in terms of manual effort, right? So how many, how many hours, how many people, how much dollars per hour are we paying these people from a, a one-time incident perspective? It could be cost offset. You know, what are the things that uh, we're no longer buying or that contract that we're no longer, uh, you know, renewing as a result of doing this thing? And then risk offset. What is the likelihood and impact of the thing that uh, we're, we're kind of addressing if a security incident took place? How fast could we respond? Um, and so I think that when it comes to convincing leadership that something is worth doing, you should start to tally up the total amount of, of money spent on finding these things and then show the money spent on fixing these things. And if the money spent on finding these things is greater than the money spent on fixing these things, you've got a problem. And you probably need to work on addressing that with your, your leadership team. We've got, speaking of also budgets, we've got a time budget, unfortunately. Uh, but Keith, you've brought us a great value um, within this discussion. So um, one, one final question. Um, do you have any more logistics about your upcoming presentation at GitHub Universe? Um, day or time, perhaps? Uh, so don't have a specific you. date yet. It's between, between December 8th and 10th, which I think is also the Security Weekly Conference, which I'm actually really excited to, to tune into as well. Um, so I don't have a specific day and time. Security uh, Security Weekly's conference, Perfect. I think, is happening right around the same time. Um, but it should be announced pretty soon. I will announce it on GitHub. I have a new handle. I was at and my hacks. Uh, my new handle since like February of last year is at securingdev on Twitter. Um, so I will be posting it on Twitter as soon as I know. Uh, and then it should be recorded. It's only a 20 minute talk. So it's a little less than this segment. You might've got more out of me than, than they will in the conference talk itself, but <laughs> it'll be covering a lot of the same topics to say the least. Awesome. Well, yes, everyone go follow Securing Dev, give Keith a shout out on Twitter and, and um, uh, go pay attention to that week of December 8th through 10th. going to be a great week for security conferences, for security presentations. Um, so once again, just want to say thanks, Keith, for joining us. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you so much. Thank you. Also want to thank, of course, John uh, as well. And want to thank all of you for joining us. We'll see you next week on Application Security is a Feature Weekly.